Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and we will be continuing our look on this, the Passover night on which Jesus was betrayed, as we explore Matthew 26, verses 47 to 56, which are the description of Christ's betrayal. Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 to 56. And if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophet might, prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's important to remember that this night is in Israel the Passover in our text. On the night of the first Passover, the night when Israel fled from Egypt, Moses recounted the length of time that the Hebrews had spent in that nation and established the Passover as a night of watching, as a night of watchfulness. Writing this in Exodus chapter 12, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. 
So for centuries, Israel had kept, Israel had commemorated the Passover, the night of watching, as they remembered the Lord, as they worshiped the Lord throughout the entirety of the night by staying awake in watchfulness for all that he had done for them. When he rescued them, bringing them out, as Deuteronomy says, from the iron furnace out of Egypt. And on this night of Passover, on this night of watching, the people would remember the words that Moses had spoke to them as they stood on the borders of the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 4. When he asked them to ponder this question, listen to this question. Has any God, Deuteronomy 4.34, ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord did before in Egypt for you before your eyes? Has any God ever loved a people this much? Has any God ever shown such power and such might as the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, did when he rescued and liberated Israel from the clutches of Egypt? And the answer to this question, of course, is a resounding no. But the Lord accomplished all of these things for, he accomplished all of these things on behalf of Israel for what reason? The text tells us in Deuteronomy 4, So that they, Israel, and by extension us, all of the nations, might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides Him. There is no other God who liberates, no other God who redeems, no other God who frees people from the enslavements that they find themselves in. That they might know, Deuteronomy 4.39, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath and there is no other And so now, once again, after 400 years of varying degrees of bondage, subjection, subordination to numerous nations, after 400 plus years of silence from the Lord, 400 years of no prophetic voice, of no prophets, Jesus is, on this Passover night, about to accomplish the deliverance the redemption, the liberation to which that first Passover pointed. The shadow is about to become a reality. You see, the first Passover revealed the mighty, wonder-working power of the Lord to save and to redeem a physical nation. And now the Lord will, as Israel on this night remembers the Passover by observing and by watching, the Lord will, on that very night, perform a great work in their midst. Once again, with outstretched arm, by trials and signs and the fulfillment of long-standing prophetic declarations, the Lord is about to deliver His people. But this time, it's not going to be from the iron furnace of Egypt. It's not going to be from the overlords that they found themselves under on this particular Passover evening, i.e. Rome. But instead, the Lord is about to liberate his people from an even worse tyrant than Egypt. Sin. 
The Lord is about to deliver his people out from the iron furnace of sin. It's one thing to be in bondage in Egypt. It's one thing to make bricks without straw. It's one thing to go through numerous hours of physical labor and oppression. It's, it's one thing to suffer under such worldly oppression. It's a completely other thing. It's another thing entirely to be held in sin's tyrannical grip. Receiving its painful lashes in this life, and even worse, the damnation it brings to us in the next. Sin will be, we will be freed from sin along with the wages that sin pays out, eternal death. You remember the Apostle Paul wrote this in his letter to the Romans. The wages of sin is death. Sin is a cruel and harsh taskmaster that seeks to enslave all who give into it, all who take part in it. Sin is deceptive. Sin creates separation between those who do it and the, the God that is calling him, them to himself. Hear what the Lord said to us, to Israel, through the prophet Isaiah in 59 verse 2. He said, your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Do you see what sin does to our standing before the Lord? To our relationship with God. And hear what Scripture tells us about sin's deceptive power. See what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, verse 11. He said, Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. And here the alarm sounded from the pen of the writer to the letter of the Hebrews in chapter 3 when he said this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin you see that phrase the deceitfulness of sin sin is a deceptive force that always makes promises that come back or that return to you void and unfulfilled this is why each generation descends into ever deeper sinful conduct. As the promises made by sin in every generation, promises of happiness and wholeness and fulfillment and joy and satisfaction, all return void. And so in our deluded state, in our deception, we think to ourselves, you know what I need? I need more. I need more of what it is that isn't satisfying me right now. That I need more of what is right now not producing in me what I thought it would. Sin is like, it's a bad analogy, but sin is like dating. You remember those days as a young teenager, maybe a young adult, when you found that person and you were just inflamed with passion for them. You just wanted to be near them and to hold them and to touch them and to kiss them and to grab them. You wanted to be around them everywhere. And you start by holding hands, right? But eventually what happens? Holding hands isn't enough. So then you move. I'm talking about like your parents' generation if you're young. 
you start to kiss, and all of a sudden holding hands isn't quite as impressive or anymore, right? Because as you keep moving forward, as you keep progressing, what you were doing before just doesn't seem to give you that same satisfaction it once did. And sin does this until it will destroy you. Sin will do this in a nation until that nation is destroyed. And if Romans 1 is to be believed, which I believe it is, then you can look at our nation. You can look at this continent and recognize that we are on the precipice of being destroyed by our sin. We are Sodom and Gomorrah. And the only reason that hailstones have not fallen from the sky and consumed us is because there are 10 righteous people in the city. Sin is a formidable enemy. And the great Puritan pastor Thomas Brooks wrote in his masterful work, if you haven't read it, I would recommend it and commend it to everyone. If you can't read Old English, try Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices is the book. He writes this, Sin is a plague, the greatest and most infectious plague in the world, and yet how few are there that tremble at this plague, that keep their distance from it. And again, sin, quote, Sin bewitches the soul so that it makes our souls call evil good and good evil. Bitter sweet and sweet bitter, light darkness and darkness light, and a soul bewitched with sin will stand with it to death. And he warns, men must not think to dance and dine with the devil and then have supper with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. To feed on the poison of asps and yet think that that viper's tongue is not going to slay them. See, sin is deceptive and bewitching and hypnotizing, so much so that when a man or a woman is caught in it and charmed by it, here's what Brooks said, a man bewitched with sin would rather lose God, would rather lose Christ, would rather lose heaven, would rather lose his own soul than part with his sin. But for those who hate their sin... For those who want to be rid of it, who want to be free from its tyranny, who want to be liberated from its wages of death, Isaiah declares this in chapter 59, verse 1, the Lord's hand is not shortened so that it cannot save. The Lord himself is our Savior and our Redeemer, and he will pave the road for us that leads to eternal life. And how will he do this? How has he done this? How has this pathway to eternal life been paved and accomplished? In the person and the work of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. On the night when he was betrayed into the hands of sinful men for the glory of the Father and the salvation of all who believed, Scripture tells us that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, but not just any sort of death. He became obedient to death on a cross, the most torturous type of death. And as we've been exploring Matthew 26 together over the last few weeks, we've seen a number of things happen on this night as Jesus moves toward the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus had told the disciples that he is about to be delivered up to be crucified. He has taken part with them in the Passover supper. He has announced to them that he is about to be betrayed by one of them. Judas has gone out 
and left the dinner to enact his villainous betrayal. And after Judas leaves, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a replacement for the Passover celebration for us Christians to commemorate until he returns. And after dinner, then Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives with the remaining 11 disciples and told them that they will all fall away because of him this night. But these disciples, if you remember, full of themselves, overconfident in themselves, they said, along with Peter, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. Now remember that sentence because it's, an import, it's important for what's coming later. Then after this discussion, Jesus went with them to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he fell on his face and prayed three times to his Father in heaven about the cup that he would soon endure. Prayers so intense that he started to drip and sweat blood onto the ground. And now as Jesus finishes these prayers, he said to them in 26 verse 47, Rise, let us be going, my betrayer is at hand. 46. See, Judas has now returned, and he has a crowd with him to double-cross Jesus, to sell Jesus out to the religious leaders. And if you're just a passive observer of what's happening, you might think Jesus seems to be out of control of the situation. But let me guarantee you and say to you, none of this catches Jesus off guard. Jesus is not some passive participant being unwillingly led to the slaughter. No, Jesus is in control the entire time. He is fully aware of what he is doing. He is fully aware of why it is happening. And he is fully capable, of, as our text tells us, of calling down 12 legions of angels should he choose to put an end to all of it. But he will not. Because he is committed to the greater redemption that is going to be secured for those who believe in his name. On this night of watchfulness in Israel. So the report of Jesus' betrayal by Judas as Jesus moves ever closer to the cross begins in verse 47. Look at it. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So everywhere Jesus went in his life and ministry, he was surrounded by crowds, which made the efforts of the religious leaders to, to arrest him and to destroy him quite difficult. We read this in Matthew chapter 21, verse 46, for example. It says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he told a numerous parables, denouncing the scribes and Pharisees, and the text says, although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. But on this night, Jesus purposefully commemorated the Passover with just his inner circle of disciples. And then he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane with the eleven only after Judas had left the dinner. Fully aware of this fact, Judas knew that Jesus frequented this particular location whenever he visited the city of Jerusalem. Jesus could have chosen to go anywhere else somewhere more secluded, somewhere more hidden. He could have chosen to go, to go to a place that Judas had no clue about. Or he could have located some large gathering of watchful people in Israel, performed a few miracles in front of them, amazing them once again, 
to have a crowd as a buffer between him and, the, and Judas and the crowds coming to betray him. But Jesus did none of these things. And on that night, as, Jesus was, as Judas was approaching, Jesus could have said to his disciples, Judas is coming. Quick, everybody up. Get running. Hide behind the trees. I'll meet you at such and such place in the morning. He could have done that if he wanted, but he didn't. Judah, Jesus, by going to the garden with only the 11, actually established and created for Judas and the religious leaders the opportunity that they sought to arrest him. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was still speaking to his disciples, we read, Judas came. If you look at John's account, he tells us in John 18, 3, Judas had procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and Luke tells us that Judas was leading them. So even this according to Peter, was the fulfillment of the prophetic word. If you remember Peter when preaching uh, just to the disciples just before Pentecost, he said this in Acts 1.16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. It's this Judas who approaches Jesus in the garden, and Matthew, in order to heighten the sense of betrayal that we are about to witness, reminds the reader once again in verse 47 that Judas was one of the twelve, one of Christ's closest associates, one who, as Peter put it in Acts 1.17, was numbered among us and was allotted a share in this ministry. This Judas had gone out just a few hours earlier into the darkness of night. And in this short period, he had gone to the religious leaders, secured some Roman soldiers, collected some others, enough to comprise what Matthew says here is a great crowd. And he led this crowd to arrest the man that he had spent the last three years learning from. The man he's watched pretty much banish sickness and disease and infirmity from any place or area that he visited. Judas had watched and witnessed Jesus raise men from the dead and restore them back to their households. Judas had seen Jesus raise daughters back to life and restore them, give them back to their fathers. Judas had seen Jesus open the eyes of men born blind, and still he went out and for 30 pieces of silver co collected a great crowd and brought them to Jesus, a crowd with swords and clubs. Imagine that scene for a second. As Judas pops out from behind the trees, leading this throng of armed men to Jesus. As Judas walks up to Jesus and stands in front of him with the rather sizable mob standing behind him with hands on the hilt of their swords and clubs tapping in their hands ready to attack. What did Judas think was going to happen here? When Matthew says the crowd was great, that word means large, means above and above average sized crowds, the estimates that I read range from a couple of hundred to a thousand. If you remember, John tells us that Judas procured a band of soldiers. The band here is a cohort, that word 
in, is a word that describes a Roman military unit that numbers upwards of 600 men. And by virtue of this being the Passover, Roman military presence in the region was amplified and heightened to ensure that no riots or uprisings had taken place. So Judas had gone out and told the Roman soldiers, there's a man we have to go and arrest because he is intending to cause a riot. Otherwise, the Roman soldiers wouldn't have joined in, which we know Jesus was not going to do. And remember this, because if you recall later, when Pilate is about to release, or he offers to release Jesus and says, said, I've got Jesus here and I've got Barabbas. Who do you want released to you? They chose Barabbas, who was actually an insurrectionist and a rabble-rouser who wanted to initiate riots in Israel or in Jerusalem. You see the hypocrisy. This man is about to cause a riot. Release to us the one who was a riotous man. The crowd led by Judas to Jesus was armed with swords and wooden clubs. I mean, how dangerous did they think Jesus was? Jesus had no history of violence, no reputation for anything other than merciful ministry to the sick and pointed rebukes to the religious leaders. This is the man who requires such a large and armed entourage to bring in? You see, as we look at this, we see in this moment a truism. That no matter how honorable you hope to be in this world, no matter how reasonable, how kind, how gentle, how compassionate you are, which is what you should be if you are a follower of Jesus, when jealousy and envy strike another because of what the Lord is doing in you, none of these things will matter to them. Jesus was the most compassionate man to ever live, and it didn't matter to them. Jealousy will respond by lashing out in the most unreasonable ways. For Jesus, meek and mild, it took the form of upwards of a thousand men arriving with swords and clubs to subdue him even as he has no history of armed rebellion or calling others to such rebellion. In fact, when Israel wanted, when the men of Israel, after feeding 5,000, wanted to install him as king by force, Jesus kind of tucked away and said, no. Envy and jealousy was the very sin that gripped the religious leaders with regard to Jesus. They hated him so much because they were so envious of him. All of their wicked acts against him sprung out from this envy. It motivated their efforts to destroy him. It was so obvious to everyone that even Pontius Pilate saw it. Mark 15.10 says, For he, Pilate, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. That's how obvious it was. A Roman who had no idea about the history between these people saw that it was out of the envy of the religious leaders. Their hatred of Jesus, born from this envy and jealousy, led to such an unreasonable and over-the-top response. And King Solomon, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, he understood this and asked the question in Proverbs 27.4, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, 
But who can stand before jealousy? Jealousy meant led them to send hundreds of armed soldiers to arrest Jesus in the garden. But as they're going, how is it that Roman soldiers who have no clue who Jesus is are going to point him out or figure out who he is? How would these Roman soldiers know which of the men to arrest when they got there? What if someone close to Jesus stood up and pretended to be Jesus in order to save Jesus' life? Well, Judas had that covered as well. You read it next in verse 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. In other words, don't just jump in there and arrest anyone. Wait to the, for me to point him out to you. I know him. I've spent three years with the man. Stay behind me and I will let you know who to arrest by going up to him and kissing him. Now, you see this is a, quite an active role that Judas takes in this whole process, right? Judas initially said, what will you give me if I betray him over to you? In answer to the religious leaders asking for someone to just tell them where Jesus is. That's what they wanted. Tell us where he is. And Judas agreed to do that for 30 pieces of silver. But Judas doesn't just lead them to where Jesus is but he takes the leading hand in pointing him out to them. He never said, I'm going to be the one who goes and points him out to you exactly. But here he is taking this leading hand. And then Mark also tells us that he commanded the soldiers to lead Jesus away under guard. Judas spoke about Jesus here as though he, Jesus were some sort of common criminal who must be apprehended, who must be arrested, who must be taken into custody and led away by an armed guard. Matthew, as we've noted over the, over the last little while, prefers brevity, and he leaves out a rather stunning detail. A detail that is recorded for us by John in John 18 that only serves to amplify the absolute lunacy of these men trying to arrest Jesus. Listen, before... Judas stepped up to identify Jesus by kissing him. John, who was, like Matthew, present at the scene, reveals this in John 18, 4-6. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Do you see the power of Jesus exhibited here? Even on this night, he stepped forward, said, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. I am. And upon his revelation of himself as I am, the entire army fell to the ground. They were toppled over. Hundreds of soldiers and armed forces that had arrived to arrest him all found themselves lying on the dirt at a simple word from the mouth of Jesus. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. Kaboom! What a scene. Jesus displayed just a small portion of the power that he keeps under control here. 
And in doing so, he reveals that he does indeed go voluntarily to the cross. It might very well have been this display of power that caused Peter to jump forward with sword in hand and confidently lop off the ear of the high priest's servant. But the men, it seems, they got up, they dusted themselves off, and they continued to do what they came to do. And Judas, even after being so visibly and forcefully reminded of Christ's power and lordship, still, in verse 49, came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Judas still decided to follow through on the prearranged side to identify Jesus to the armed mob. And he spoke the hollow words, greetings, rabbi. Words that in every other context are words of gladness, words that hope for the health and the happiness of those to whom they are spoken. These are the words that fall from the mouth of Judas, even as his heart in that second is intent on betraying him over to this armed mob. And not only did Judas speak empty words, but he also walked up to Jesus and he embraced him. And kissed him. A kiss designed to point Jesus out as the target, not to honor him as Lord. And the word for kiss here doesn't speak to a single kiss. It speaks to a frequent, repeated, eager, profuse kissing. It's not just kiss. It's kiss, 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 kiss. It was a common practice in these days to for a disciple to kiss their rabbi in such a manner to show their, their love and their devotion, which makes the act all the more sinister here because as Judas kisses and hugs Jesus from the front, all, the whole while you can imagine the metaphorical knife held into his hand with which he stabs his, his Lord in the back. Proverbs Solomon said in the Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of an enemy, but profuse are the or faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Nowhere is this more clearly displayed than on this night. And as Judas kissed and hugged Jesus, Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. As Luke adds, Jesus also said, Judas. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He says, friend, meaning my old companion, my associate. Do what you've come to do. The idea being, listen, enough with the pretense. Enough with this phony show of affection. Get on with it. Do what you're really here to do. Are you not ashamed to betray me with a kiss? Why not just arrive here, walk up to me, and use your finger and say, Him! Why all the theatrics of kissing and embracing? Just do what you came to do. And after this exchange, verse 50 tells us that the soldiers came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So imagine, right? Imagine people on both sides holding him by his arms like this so that he is stuck there. Now that Judas had identified him as the target, the soldiers moved in and they grabbed him. They took control of him. They gripped him in their hands to restrain him. And now Jesus, who is firmly held in their clutches, 
as he is firmly held in their clutches, it is at this moment that the disciples feel the need to rise up and defend Jesus with force. Luke tells us that in this moment, the disciples cried out, Lord, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Meaning, shall we attack now? Is now the moment? But before Jesus could answer, verse 51, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John, in his gospel, in chapter 18, verse 10, he reveals both the name of the disciple who swung the sword and the name of the servant who had their ear cut off. Peter is the disciple who struck the high priest's servant, and Malchus was the name of the servant. Commentators seem to agree that the reason Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't name names is because when they wrote, Peter was still alive. And so they wrote their gospel accounts, leaving the name out to avoid any unnecessary charges being brought against Peter by Malchus as he went about ministering. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they say, one of those with Jesus. Whereas when John wrote his gospel, Peter had by this time been martyred. But Peter, in this moment, grabbed his sword, swung it, and struck the ear off Malchus, the high priest's servant. And the Greek indicates that Peter wasn't aiming for the ear. Peter's goal was to cut the man's head off. He was aiming for the neck, but only caught the ear. Peter wasn't a trained soldier by any means. But the picture is the disciples were ready to fight with and for Jesus. They were ready to draw their swords and to cut the heads off those who were trying to seize Jesus on this night. But if you recall, Jesus had told them, in 26 verse 31, you will all fall away from me because of me this night. You will all stumble because of me this night. And as you can see here, the cause of that stumbling isn't their fear of fighting because it seems like they were ready to swing their swords and die in battle for Jesus. They showed no fear in the face of this large cohort of armed Roman soldiers. In fact, this is the moment they had probably been waiting for for years. Now is the time to fight. Now is the time for us to pull out our swords and help Jesus ascend to the throne of kingship over Israel. Now is the moment we lift up our swords and advance in his name, and Peter is ready to fight. The disciples are ready to fight. They are ready to pull out and wield the weapons of earthly warfare for the cause of the kingdom. To them, this was no cause for stumbling. This is what they've been waiting for. They were happy to use the earthly means at their disposal. And even though they were badly outnumbered, it's 1,000 to 11. Such a numerical disadvantage had never been a problem for Israel in the past, and these men know that, especially when the Lord fights for them. The cause for their stumbling and fleeing comes as Jesus said to Peter, after Peter drew his sword and struck the high priest's ear, the cause of stumbling comes in verse 52. Put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. 
These 11 disciples were willing to fight to the death, but they were not prepared or ready to walk the path of meekness modeled for and commanded by King Jesus. The call to sheathe the sword was too much for them in this moment. And why is that? As Peter stood there with sword in hand, with the blood from Malchus' ear running down the blade, perhaps ready to swing it again, Jesus, according to Luke 22.51, shouted, No more of this! And Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, preaching on this passage said, You know, it would have been better, it would have been far better if Peter's hands had been clasped in prayer rather than on the hilt of his sword. Jesus here is revealing to them and to us that the kingdom of God is not advanced, it is not taken hold of, it is not secured by such human means. The kingdom of God is not something we usher in by any worldly method of warfare. It is advanced by our faithfulness to the Great Commission, by our going out into the world and making disciples of all nations by teaching them to obey everything Christ has commanded. The kingdom is advanced in our world by the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, by the church, by all of you knowing the gospel and speaking the gospel. This is the knowledge that every one of us ought to have down more clearly than anything else. And it's the first thing that ought to come out of our mouths as we engage with this exceedingly wicked and sinful society. It's easy for us to fight fire with fire. It's easy for us to pull out our swords and use earthly methods. What is not easy is to be gospel people, meek, with power under control like Jesus. We don't begin by fighting politics with politics. We don't begin by fighting force with force. We put that back in the sheath and we proclaim Christ crucified, Christ risen. We proclaim to this world, Jesus has paid it all. Jesus is victorious. Jesus has finished it on the cross and you can be saved if you would repent of your sin and believe in his name. That's our weapon. And let me just tell you, if you can talk about worldly methods for hours and hours and hours, but you don't know the gospel, your priorities are out of whack. If you feel a level of trepidation or an inability to go and say to people the good news of Jesus Christ, but you have no problem talking politics for hours and hours, you need to screw your head on straight. You are earthly-minded. And that must be changed. You need to know the gospel more than you know anything else. It needs to be down in your word. Knowing what Jesus has done, that is the sword in your hand. And it's the only sword 
that will change the world. We must be preparing ourselves with the knowledge of God and salvation by grace through faith in Christ and heading out into the world knowing, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. But sadly, to the disrepute of Christ's name in the world, supposedly Christian nations and supposedly Christian peoples have continually disregarded this call to sheathe the sword and continue to advance in the world with the gospel by taking up the very means that Christ told his disciples to reject. Our weapons, are not, our weapons are not physical. Our weapons are spiritual. Our armor is spiritual. The enemies we fight are spiritual. Our task in this world is not to go out and Christianize everything. Our task in this world is to proclaim and to publish the good news, to proclaim the gospel, the saving work of Jesus Christ to everyone, everywhere. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter where they stand on any issue, for the glory of God and for the salvation of souls, we go out and we make disciples. It's not by worldly power that the kingdom of God is advanced as people turn to Jesus in faith, but by a suffering Messiah who conquered sin and death and calls on us to proclaim to a world that is subject to sin and death how to be liberated. It's not the drawing of physical swords and the use of physical methods, but the donning of the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes that proclaim the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We don't take up the sword, the earthly sword, because look what Jesus said next. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Meaning... The methods you use will only bring back upon you those very same methods in equal and sometimes even harsher response. Violence will only beget violence. The sword will only bring back the sword. Violence will always come back upon the heads of those who use it as a means to impose their ideas. You did this to me, now I'm going to do this to you. But for us who follow Christ, the witness of Scripture is, and the the model laid down for us by Christ is that it's better to be wronged. It's better to suffer injustice. It is better to endure and to persevere through hostility, to walk the path of the cross in meekness, entrusting ourselves to a God who judges justly and preaching the gospel the whole way. That is better than picking up the swords and setting ourselves on the predictable path of violence doled out and violence returned back. What benefit is any of that to the gospel? How does it display to the world that we live in that we serve the prince of what? The prince of peace. Our example was, our example is Jesus, who endured it all, who walked the road of sufferings, who was a man of sorrow and traveled that path unto death. And now, where is Jesus now? Exalted to the right hand of God the Father. In like manner, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman Christians who were suffering also, said to them, 
I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. But Peter on this night, and sadly, many of us oftentimes are fixated on the sufferings of the present time and how we have to pull out the physical sword or use earthly means to to quell them rather than we are. We're focused on those more than we're focused on the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Paul tells us, these things here and now are not worth so much of your mental shelf space. Instead, let us consider the glory revealed to us. And all of this is a real difficult moment for the disciples. They want to fight. They want to take up arms. They don't want meekness and and spiritual weapons. They want to mobilize against their evil Roman overlords. They want to say, Let's go, let's fight. But let me just tell you this. That's easy. It's easy to shout. It's easy to argue. It's easy to get angry. It's easy to rattle our swords. Just follow your flesh and you'll get there. What is truly difficult, actually what is impossible, is in our own strength, is to trust the means that have been established for us by the Lord preaching the gospel, which Paul makes clear is foolishness to the world, foolishness to the Gentile and a stumbling block to the Jews. And yet, it is that very foolishness that God uses to reconcile the world to himself. So when Peter and the disciples said, I will die with you, they meant, I will die fighting I will die swinging the earthly sword with you, but I will not die with that sword sheathed, walking humbly and meekly without resistance to my own death. It's for this reason that they all flee. You see, Peter thought he could help Jesus by pulling out his sword and lopping off this guy's ear, but all he did was make a bloody mess for Jesus to clean up. Jesus touched Malchus's ear and healed him, as we read in Luke twenty-two fifty-one. What Peter should have done is listen to what Christ told him to do in the garden. Peter, watch and pray. Because, listen, Peter was able to lop off someone's ear with the earthly sword. But I want you to think for a second, and I want you to compare what Peter was able to do later when he wielded the sword of the Spirit. He could cut off ears with the earthly sword, but when he preached to the people at Pentecost, it wasn't their ears that were cut. Listen to this in Acts chapter 22, verse 37. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. One sword cuts off ears and elicits a sword in return. The other cuts men to the heart with the gospel. One sword meets with resistance, while the other sword, the gates of hell, can't stand up to its power. And if you're asking me which sword I would prefer, give me the sword of the Spirit over the weapons of earthly warfare every single day of the week. Jesus continued, If understanding that using the weapons of earthly warfare only come back to you in equal measure and that if you live by the sword, chances are you will die by the sword, then know this, Peter, verse 52, 
Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will come and send me more than 12 legions of angels? The idea being, Peter, if I required your help, if I required your military intervention, if I required military intervention of some kind, if I required some sort of warlike response, I wouldn't need it from you. I could simply call for it from my father. And he would send it to me and end the whole ordeal. He would send to me 12 legions of angels. One for all of you, one for me. And if you remember what one angel can do, back in 2 Kings 19.35, one angel went out and struck down 185,000 Assyrians. That's one angel. A legion is 6,000 of them. I could call 72,000 angels down right now. Peter, what is your piddly little sword going to do? All of your little efforts, Peter, to advance or to protect me by that worldly mean is nothing compared to the power that is at my disposal at this very second. But I trust the Father because if the kingdom is going to advance, it's going to advance in his good timing and his good will. When the kingdom advances, as the kingdom advances, it will advance in his good timing and his good will. But here we see Jesus. He's not going to call on these legions of angels. He's not going to appeal to the Father for them, but he will instead continue to walk the path of meekness, the path of suffering, the path of shame. Because if he were to call down those angels, look at verse 54, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? There is a reason Christ is not making any effort to escape telling people to put their swords back, telling them don't bother with any resistance, it's because he fully trusts in his Father's will and plan. Nothing can happen to him, nothing can happen to you, nothing can happen to me, nothing can happen to anyone unless the Father has permitted it. And this perfect plan established by the triune God from eternity must and will be carried out and fulfilled as written. It must be that Jesus is oppressed and afflicted and led to the slaughter, that he is crushed and he is put to grief, that he makes the atoning sacrifice for the iniquity of us all as prophesied in Isaiah. And now after he speaks to the disciples, he now turns his focus on the very men holding him in his arms and said in verse 55, Have you come out against as out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. Have you come after me as though I'm some sort of violent man? I've always been around you, never called for violence, never showed a hint of violence, and never given you any reason for you to bring such a sizable force to arrest me. And here you are, because this is your hour. The Lord has allowed you, my Father in heaven has allowed you to commit this heinous deed and he will ultimately turn this for the good of all who love him and who are called according to his purpose. The reason that all of this is happening as it is, the reason for all of it is that so the scriptures will be fulfilled. The Father is overseeing all of these proceedings. The Father is overseeing how all of this is playing out. Not the crowds, not the religious leaders, this will all come to pass as Scripture has prophesied. 
And every single one of the Lord's words will be fulfilled. But for the disciples on this night, these words weren't enough to keep them at Christ's side. After hearing him explain everything at this moment, even though they'd seen and heard so much from him over these last three years, they had witnessed great acts of power, miraculous signs. They'd seen him put the religious leaders in their place time and time and time again. They witnessed Jesus feed 5,000, walk on water, calm the storm, call Lazarus from the grave. But here, as he stands in the custody of these religious leaders, he is doing nothing to change it. And not only that, you can imagine Peter and the disciples saying, and when we try to help him, he chastises us for it? What is going on? Has he been forsaken? Were we wrong this whole time? Whatever it is that's going through their mind, it is at this moment that they abandon Jesus because he has caused them to, be, he has caused them to stumble or he has been a stumbling block for them and they ran away as Jesus said they would. You see the disciples who thought themselves so strong, who boasted that they would never deny Jesus. Now, when tried and tested, after hearing from Jesus a call, a command that stretched them to their limits, the call to lay down their earthly weapons and to trust the path of meekness called, out, called for them to obey or to walk by their Father, they just can't do it. They just don't trust God enough to make such a difficult commitment. The cost is too much. They want to take matters into their own hands. And Jesus said no. And he'll later on come to them and say, listen, your task is simply to go out and make disciples. You leave the rest to me. I have all authority. On seeing this, hearing this, they abandoned him. And now Messiah is betrayed into the hands of men. And instead of resisting, he lets them lead him to the cross. And as we read this, we should say to ourselves, all hail, all exaltation to our Lord Jesus Christ, our perfectly meek Savior, our great model of faith and trust in his heavenly Father's plan, who for the sake of your salvation, on this day told Peter, you sheathe your sword, who as he was being betrayed did not call down 12 legions of angels, but so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, so that the plan of God would be satisfied, he kept walking the path to his death in our place, on our behalf, as our substitute, so that anyone here who calls out to him, who confesses their sin and believes in his name, who repents and turns to him in faith, can be saved to the glory of the Father. Lord, you are good to us in so many ways. And Lord, as I read this, historical event in your life, I can't help but think that I wouldn't, that none of us here would have had the strength and the power and the wherewithal to remain meek in such a trying circumstance. It truly is necessary that you took on flesh and made your dwelling among us and that you walked this path because none of us could have.
Lord, we thank you that even as you're being betrayed by one of your close associates, you remained meek. Even as your disciples pull out the sword and cut the ears off and say, we'll fight with you, you remain meek. And because of that, we can be here joyfully proclaiming and singing to you, thanking you for the confidence and the hope that we have that one day you are going to come and you're going to take us to be with you where we, you are and we will enjoy you fully and completely and in great unspeakable glory spend the rest of our days forever and ever and ever and ever with you, our greatest joy, our supreme treasure. And we praise you for all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.